Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access all the references mentioned here at the end of the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sophie Havickhurst, who was a child clinical psychologist at Mindful Center for Training and Research in Developmental Health at the Department of Psychiatry, University of Melbourne. Sophie is one of the founders of the program Tuning Into Kids, an emotion-focused, evidence-based parenting program that she developed with co-author Anne Harney. Along with her colleagues at the University of Melbourne, the Tuning Into Kids team have conducted many research trials of the program with parents and carers of children of a range of ages in Australia and internationally. Tuning Into Kids is now widely used in Australia by practitioners working with parents and carers in schools, kindergartens, community health and clinical services. The program has been translated into 15 languages and there is also a practitioner training in the user of the program offered online. Welcome, Sophie. I understand that there's now a suite of parenting programs that has been extended into tuning into teens and tuning into kids specifically for fathers. Can you tell us how the whole idea of the Tuning Into Kids program came about? Certainly. Thank you for having me along. It's, um, I guess, in starting, um, it leads from your beginning point that you raised today about helping families finding ways of connecting with children beyond just looking at their children's behaviour. And so the origins of this work, I mean, they go right back to, I mean, I trained as a, a child, as a clinical psychologist in New Zealand, and um, a lot of my experiences were working in prisons and in mental health settings where I was really aware that adults didn't have those fundamental skills at knowing how they felt, at recognizing whether this was hunger or sadness or anxiety, whether this was anger or rejection. And so behaviors and mental health problems often came and even offending often came when people didn't understand how they felt and didn't weren't able to manage how they felt so when I was learning about all this I became really interested in prevention and really interested in helping look at where and when do children develop these core and basic skills of understanding their emotions and being able to manage and regulate their emotions and so when I was in New Zealand I I wanted to start working on a PhD and wanted to develop a, a program that was going to be different than what we were usually looking at in early intervention, which is more behavioral parenting programs. I wanted to look at something that helped parents teach their kids these really fundamental skills of emotional competence. And so I became interested in this and, and replied and came across to Australia, to Melbourne, to do a PhD with Margot Pryor and Anne Sanson. And on coming over here, met Anne Harley, who was a parent educator. And she was also really interested in a focus on helping um, parents respond to children's emotions and building parent-child connections. She was working at the Victorian Parenting Centre, it was called at the time. And Lynn Littlefield, who was the head of the APS uh, for a number of years, who was actually the director of that centre, put the two of us together because she knew we had a very similar ethos, a really similar idea, and we were very passionate about developing a parenting program that helped focus on on facilitating that emotional development in children through the connection, through the relationship and through the way parents would talk with children about emotions. So that's kind of where we began. 
And um, so Anne and I have, have continued this work over the last 22 years in developing it. And we started with the preschool years and then we've worked into going into um, school age, working with parents of school age kids into parents of teenagers, looking at fathers and how fathers might use these ideas. And we have, so we have diversified the program into different ages, but the fundamentals of what we've done have uh, worked at building the skill we call emotion coaching. And emotion coaching has come from John Gottman and Lynn Fancy Bacats and Carolyn Hooven's work in, um, at the uh, University of Washington in Seattle. Their work provided the theoretical basis for our program, Tuning Into Kids program, which was where when parents focused on emotions and talked with their kids around emotions and also managed their own expression of emotions, that facilitated these core skills of emotional competence in kids. And so that theory has been the basis of what Anne and I have worked with and over time have taken the program to a number of different areas, different age groups and things like that. But that's the fundamentals of where we began. Yeah. That is so fascinating and such a relief to hear you say that you want to go beyond a behavioural approach and beyond strategies and beyond wanting to get rid of behaviour as though it's suddenly arrived out of nowhere, when, of course, you know, it arises out of relationships and so on. And I'm, I'm fascinated as well by your comments about people being so puzzled about where these emotions come from, you know, how as adults we can be beset by emotions and enact them rather and, and as though they've come from somewhere else when really it's so much connected with our history. Mm. Um, so you're really talking about a central focus on the emotional connection between parents, carers and their children, rather than simply trying to fix a behavioural problem. How do parents react to that when you say, well, look, we're not going to give you a strategy? How do they, how do they take to that? Well, it's, it's really interesting. Um, when we began, Anne and I began this work, we knew that this was a really core part of what we wanted to help parents to, to learn about. But we were also aware people might feel quite threatened by this idea as well. And so we began with the idea that we really had to help um, parents with certain skills of how to talk with kids about emotions and how to talk with them about anger, talk with them about um, anxiety and give them strategies of what to do. So that idea of strategies with your child is a really important part that draws people in. Because if you've got a kid who's reacting, you know, and having huge temper tantrums, you need to know, what do I do? So we did, we did begin with that focus on, we'll teach you some skills of how to talk and respond to your child when they have these different emotions that will help them understand their feelings, manage their feelings, but also manage their behavior. So we did draw them in with that. But we also built on these other whole levels, which you've alluded to it already, that, that parents' responses to kids' emotions come from their own histories with emotions and how people talk to them or reacted when they were sad growing up or angry or distressed or worried or excited or feeling prou proud. So parents' own histories contribute to how they parent. And we knew we also had to tackle that as an important part of how they would then interact with their children around emotions but you can't advertise that. You can't put that up and say, this is what we're going to do because people are not going to come to a program that looks at that. But that is a very important part of the work. If you're going to change your automatic reactions to a child who's angry. So if your automatic reaction is, is disapproval, because that's very much through and through your experience in your own history, it's very hard to use a new strategy if you have that automatic reaction. So we knew we had to tackle that part. So that meant helping parents be aware of their emotions and, and also to manage their reactions. And so we've, we've had, that's a core part of the program. And yet it's not necessarily what we would say up front. That's the main part of the program, although it's a very important part of learning. How can you help parents learn these skills? But, you know, as we all know, it's often easier to say, okay, let's, if I start with my child and focus on my child, maybe I can get a handle on what to do. Oh, all right, it is also how I'm reacting to my child. Maybe I can do something with how I react. So I think part of engaging parents is in, in the work around how they will interact with their children around emotions is to first draw them into what can we do with your child? What can you do in your responses with your child? And then from there, 
you become aware of, well, what other things are contributing? What else can I do? And that may come back a little more to my own reactions as a parent, uh, my own history as a, 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 you know, with emotions. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking that, you know, one of, one of the things that I always tell parents is that all behaviour that, that children communicate has a meaning, you know, that behaviour is not random, although parents like to believe that the behaviour is a bit random. It's just, you know, a, a rock has hit them from nowhere, as it were, and it's their child or the child's irritating behaviour. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, a very focused on the meaning of behaviour and how children speak the family. And mm-hmm. they have that they behave, and, and sometimes that's the only way they can speak it. You know, if we think about all the royal commissions that have been carried out about child sexual abuse, physical abuse, and so on, I mean, these were children who, who were never listened to. They were never seen as being reliable um, uh, people who, who were actually communicating their experience. Do you think parents are prepared to accept that the behaviour has a meaning, that it's not just random or set up to annoy them? Absolutely. I think it's, um, that's one of the things when we start to help um, people understand a bit more, like say understanding that the surface behavior is this, but underneath there's a whole lot of feelings. And that if we respond to the feelings, then the behavior often changes. So people, I think, really cotton on quickly to that idea. And then they start to see that the behavior becomes a sign of something that's not able to be expressed emotionally. It might be stress in the family. It might be the fight that happened with the parents between the parents last night. It might be moving house. It might be the change in school. That something has come out and it plays out in the behaviour. So, I think we see when this is what I mean by if you start with a focus on tuning into your child, tuning into what's going on with your child, then you then start to become more aware of the function of the behaviour, telling you about what's underneath the surface. Uh, and I, I think we've actually found that if you take people to this gradually and you also give people the option of choosing the parts of an intervention or a program or some ideas, choose the parts that you like that fit for you, that's also really important because if we want parents to have a more respectful view of children's emotional world, their internal world, we also have to have that same parallel with how we work with parents, how we work with carers, so that they feel like they also have an important voice that's heard and listened to. So sometimes it's giving them, uh, giving people ideas, um, some things to explore, things to try out, and for them to actually choose what they like and what fits for them and their family. That I think can really help rather than imposing this is a way you have to have an attitude you have to take and we found that people come to understanding over time when they go back home and they say to their kid who's just whacked their sibling and then they're in the other room they go and see this child that's just done the hitting and they might just just sit there for a bit they're trying out their skills of just slowing themselves down from just telling that kid off straight away and they might say you're really feeling quite jealous of her birthday coming up aren't you then the kid dissolves into tears and they have a hug and the parent sees that that hitting of the the sibling the function of that also might have been that they weren't able to communicate jealousy around a birthday coming up for that sibling and then a parent comes back and goes look this is what I found out I did this and this happened so that experience of trying things out and coming to those realizations rather than just having them imposed on you as ideas you have to change your mindset I think that's a really important part of exploring and things unfolding over time and people being able to work out how these ideas fit for them, you know, and fit for their family and their, their approach to life. Absolutely. And I suppose that's what you mean by emotional intelligence and emotion coaching. Um, I just wonder, do you, when you work with parents, do, they, do you work with them in groups? So how, at what point, how do you kind of connect with them or how do they connect with you? Well, we, we started uh, tuning into kids program. We Our first version that Anne and I developed was a group-based program. And we have found groups are fantastic ways of um, teaching people these ideas because you're, you bring in some ideas, the group explore them, people learn from each other, they practice things together, they reflect, they bounce off each other. So they don't just learn from you, they learn from the group process. And also I've seen so many times a parent say, 
at session four of a group say, you know, I just heard what this mum was saying about her own family background and how she always shuts down with anger. And I realised that's exactly what's going on for me with my kids when they're getting angry. So people's insights are often... Uh, they're less defensive in that hearing from others and hear, not in a preachy way, but as in other people exploring things that allows people to come across the information in the right timing. And so we, we always have really liked that group dynamic for working. That said, it's not for everybody. Not everyone feels safe to come and share things in a group. Um, so we've also found our program has been useful. We're delivering it in one-to-one setting where a therapist might deliver one-to-one um, with a, a parent who they're working with, or we have an online version of the program. But I think materials have to go out to families in whatever way they will access them, whether it be at the level of, you know, an information in a school newsletter or some tip sheets or some video material they look at or an online program or one-to-one work or group work. You have to have these different levels because people will pick different things that fit for them and depending on the level of difficulty they might be having. I also think that groups are fantastic whether you're having problems or not, they're actually a great way to learn. So we have always offered tuning into kids as a universal program. So for everybody, but also selected for those for who are maybe having problems. And, and um, as you're saying earlier, we've trained many thousands of professionals to use our programs in their work, whether they be in schools and kindergartens and child and adolescent mental health services and child protection and prisons and drug and alcohol services, wherever they might be, they will offer the programs, either group or one-to-one work or just little snippets that parent, a parent might sit in someone's office and you say, okay, I just want you to think a little bit about these ideas of emotion coaching. When your child's emotional, See if you can just notice that emotion, connect with them, show, um, communicate empathy, uh, reflect or name the feeling, and then maybe solve the problem, maybe limit set, but wait to do that when until you're first on those first four steps of emotion coaching. So in a consultation, that might happen just, you know, a 15-minute consultation in a school counselor's office or, you know, with a parent. And that's what we found is that in training many professionals, it gets delivered in many different ways. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I so agree with you about groups. I think groups are are phenomenal. Um, Having run a a parenting organisation years ago in the UK, and groups um, have their own dynamic. And then, of course, people can hear things from other people, other parents, that they can't hear from perhaps the facilitator, Mm -hmm. a person who wants to communicate something or for whom something appears to be very obvious. So, you know, and where people can be on the same level, or you can also have people in a group where where some parents have got older children and can actually look back and reflect on what it was like to have a baby or a young child and be very helpful to people who are at the earlier point of parenting. So um, groups are are, are phenomenal. I mean, I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of groups. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was thinking about the, we, we ran a trial of our tuning into toddlers program. Many of the parents were so tired that they could barely make, and, and had babies often as well as a toddler, they could barely make it to a group. It was hard to get through a group, but that level of just suddenly opening up and hearing about the parenting experience from other parents was just, it was almost like you could see people move from session one looking I'm so exhausted. I'm so heavy with this parenting. So by session six, you could see this unfurling that happened. And I, I think that that group context was really so central in the holding of their development as parents, but getting that from each other around what they were learning from each other at a time when you're at a very raw time, I think, as a parent, when you're just learning and everything feels like you're making mistakes or not getting it right or things are going wrong or sleep deprived and your relationship's stressed and you can't work and there's chaos, you know, that those times a group can really bring together and normalize that. Absolutely. But they also depend on a very skilled facilitator, don't they? Yeah. So, you know, it's people, I don't think it's just about people coming together and having mm-hmm. a rant or all going down the tubes together or competing with how ghastly everything is. It really depends on a lot of skill on the part of the group facilitator. Would, would you agree?
Hi, Ruth. I just had a, a break in the connection there. I'm back. <laughs> okay. I was just saying that I think it depends on the on the skill of the facilitator, doesn't it? Yep, absolutely. Look, I think that's true. Um, we've also found, though, in training many professionals that to become a skilled facilitator, you've got to start somewhere and it really can help to have a fairly structured manual to set up the way that you run a group. So we've, in our, in our training of professionals, we train people to deliver to a manual and we give them a lot of information around how to do the things that build skilled facilitators. So I, I agree with you. Part of it is, you know, it's great. If you, but you can also, this is how we develop as professionals. You know, we've got to start somewhere. And it's often with a manual sitting there going, okay, how am I going to do this? All right, my colleague and I, we're going to have a go. This is the first time. We might not tell our parents that, but this is our first time. We've got to begin that. So I also see that um, you can support professionals to develop the skills of group facilitation if you provide good resources for them to deliver programs. Yes, I think that's important. And training as well. Yes, especially in a country like Australia where, people, where things are so remote mm-hmm. and you want to be able to connect with people in, in really right across the regions. Yes. I'm fascinated that you've been involved in very extensive research trials of the program, both in Australia and around the world. And I wonder if you can tell us how the research trials were conducted and have they focused mainly on evaluation and outcomes? Yes, good question. Um, because when Anne and I started, like we were, we were working with emotions we're working with the emotional connection between people and this kind of people often said you know you're never going to get evidence for how a touchy-feely program like this is going to is going to work and right from the beginning because I was really clear we needed to get a very strong evidence base to show that yes uh I wouldn't say it's a touchy-feely I think it's 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 looking at the emotional world of parents and children and how they can connect and talk around that sorry dog and um, so I think, um, well, well, yeah, um, so sorry, I've just had a, a, a dog jump on, on and come into the room for me. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I completely forgot what I was saying. It was there, talking Ruth. about getting an evidence base for, for the research. Yes, sorry. Okay. So in, in getting the evidence base, we, we knew we had to get strong evidence for that our program was working. Oh. And... Um, so what we've done is we've done a series of randomized control trials, initially under good, really strong conditions, gold standard conditions, and then later under conditions where we've trained professionals with not really high qualifications to see whether they get similar results, which we've also found. So we've started with that. And then we've also done some similar trials, pilot and then randomized control trials overseas as different countries have expressed interest in doing research trials so that's one level of what we've done but there's also now been more trials happening sort of real world trials in lots of different places where people say okay well we're doing this work with the child protection um, families and we want to evaluate this so more and more over time now we're seeing more of those real world evaluations or real world research trials of our program happening that we may not be doing anymore that others are doing and that's um, something we've really also wanted to support people to do that. That's been really important and support them to do that research evaluation because we can't, you know, research is expensive to do and it's great to see how it will pan out when people start it. And, you know, we had, there's a lovely trial that happened in New Jersey with um, uh, parents of adoptive and kinship care families where they're working with really, really tough families who had kids who were, lots of trauma, lots of difficulties in their families. And they wanted to do an evaluation of tuning into teens, the teens version of our program over there. And it was great. We've supported them to do that, but they've done all of that evaluation. And that's an important part of a program that you actually see the program evaluated out in the real world by others as well. So we've, we've done a lot of that. That's, I mean, that's tremendous. I'm very interested in the idea of the, the randomised controlled trial. And I have to say... Mm. As having done some research myself, I feel there's really a place for qualitative research as well, and 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 the in-depth kind of communication and, and and information one can get. But just going back to the randomized control trial, you carried it out 
by using uh, people who were trained in your particular approach versus people who were not was that the the the, the variable um we we did we of people who were trained and then and then we just compared to um families who hadn't had the intervention so what well, we did though had it all. yes yeah so the randomization was of the families not of the professionals i see yes yes yep. And and presumably you found that there was an improvement with the um, families who had attended your programs. We did. When we see, it's really interesting that even whether it be across the board, if uh, um, doing a really high quality randomised control trial where maybe myself or Christiane Kehoe, who's one, our main research manager, or Anne or whatever, if we're delivering, we get really good results. But also, when we've seen that we get very similar results in parents becoming better at emotion coaching, less emotionally dismissive, having better regulation of their own emotions, children having better emotional knowledge and regulation, and fewer behavior problems. We've seen that both with those really tightly, you know, trials with us doing it right through to um, when practitioners have, you know, very basic level of, of skill training previously, they come to a a two-day professional training, they get some supervision and then they run the groups. And so it's interesting. So, yes. so part of it is the program speaks for itself. It's not just the facilitator or the deliverer, even though I agree with you that the quality of the facilitator is important as well. But the ideas, I think, often speak for themselves. If people can access them in a way that's not too threatening, it's understandable, they can get the gist of it. They can practice because we've found people have to practice these emotion coaching skills in order to use them with their kids. If they don't practice them, it's not just a conceptual idea. It's got to be a doing idea so that ideally you have in some way supported by whoever's helping you learn the skills. Do you have any ongoing contact with the parents after they've attended a group or a series um, of groups? Yeah, look, we, 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 we don't have, um, I mean, one of the trials that we're running right now, we're following people up for about 18 months or two years after they've done a program, a tuning into kids program. And that's a trial of primary school age kids who are having with challenging behaviours and people were randomised into a one-to-one -one delivery of the group, a group delivery of the group, an online version of the group or control. So we've been following people up. Uh, over time we still haven't seen the the final outcomes yet um, many people will say to you in, in terms of qualitative feedback I'm still using these skills you know these are still really been key in my life but I think people often need um, refreshers or boosters because you know what you have with a toddler is different than a primary school age kid or a teenager like emotion coaching is still really good for teens, um, but you shift the way you communicate with a teenager. You shift the way you use these skills. You know, you use less naming of emotions. You, you may be less directive. You step much further back from having control because of that change in the parent-child relationship in teen years. So, but you still use the core. So people need help. And how do I adjust these over time? How do I continue to have those the, the gist of that? So that's one of the things that we often hear from parents. And so we are coming across parents often over time now who say, oh, I was, I've done a tune into toddlers program, but now I'm actually doing the same program for my teenager who they've grown up and they're a teenager now. So I think that reflects that yes. need. But we have ongoing needs to keep learning as parents yes, and absolutely. keep coming back to these ideas. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, I, I so agree with that. Just going back to the research trials you've conducted around the world, what sort of differences have you found? Or do you find that actually there are very few differences and there are so many core similarities and other oh. issues? Yes, it's, it's interesting. What um, Christiane and I have um, been working on this paper um, looking at the differences of tuning into kids delivered in Iran, Turkey, um, Germany, and what's the other place, in China. So people, professionals in those areas have trained in the program with us and then they've delivered in pilot trials, they've delivered the tuning into kids program for preschool age, parents of preschool age kids. 
And like they've all, if you look at the stats, you see similar changes in terms of reductions in dis emotional dismissiveness and improvements in emotion coaching in terms of parenting. But the feedback from the people running those trials to us has been that you have to alter the way the messages are delivered. So for example, in um, Turkey and somewhat in Iran and somewhat in China, the good of the group is very important. So for a child to assert their anger may not be for the good of the group. That's a much more of a Western individualistic idea that was works in Australia and it worked okay in Germany, but it wasn't as good in China where you wouldn't actually say, oh, I'm really angry with you towards your mother, you know. So whereas we might say, use your words, not your fists, you know, like we try and get kids to put words to the feeling. Um, so there has to be cultural adaptations of how the core ideas are still taught. But at the same time, finding a way where a child is still putting words to emotional experience and for the parent to communicate acceptance of the child's feeling and still guiding them in their behaviour. And that will vary from cultural group to cultural group. So that's been really interesting to see that. Interesting, and the facilitator in Turkey was saying that for some Turkish families, they're very traditional and some are moving much more into a more modern phase where they're wanting children to have better emotional competence, which requires that, that they really value these ideas of, of emotion coaching. But these parents are saying they're the grandparents do not like these changes. So from one generation to the next, where they're seeing change in how they're parenting, which is what we also see in Australia as well. Yes. Um, so they are also seeing shifts, which are not just cultural, but are generational shifts in attitudes to emotions. And I have to say, um, one of the things that we're trying to do, we're trying to encourage parents to, or carers of, of children to put words to a children's emotions. We're not trying to say to them, just because you feel this, you can do whatever you like. And that's actually very important culturally because, for example, in Iran, they were very worried they'd turn their kids into being spoiled brats because they could be emotional and get whatever they wanted. So that much more authoritarian idea of discipline your child when they're out of line we had to work with that and the, the facilitators there had to really work with that very strong cultural view in order to still have a way of accepting children's emotions, you know, like it's okay you feel angry but you can't hit. It's okay you feel this way but you can't do this. So that limit between behaviour and emotion was important in order for parents to be able to still see that emotions were valid even though behaviour was, was still, there was cultural, you know, the, this is important about how our children behave. And that varies from cultural group to cultural group. It's, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and amazing that you're running these uh, trials and, and pilot groups and workshops literally around the world. But I was going to ask you this question later, but it's very relevant actually in terms of what you've just said, because I find a recurring issue in my clinical work is that parents present as having difficulty with boundary and limit setting for their children. So they don't set boundaries, they don't have limits. Then they complain about their children being out of control and then they want a strategy to stop that, whatever that behaviour is. And they become confused about using appropriate authority as parents versus being authoritarian. So they may have, had, they may have grown up in a family where parents said, you just do what I tell you, et cetera, et cetera, or they may have been hit or, or whatever. Um, but but they, they, they don't seem to understand or they get confused between the fact that you, you don't have to be authoritarian in order to have authority. You know, so sometimes when parents, parents say their children will say, why should you be the boss of me? And I tend to, I encourage them to say, well, by virtue of the power invested in me by the, the law of the land, you know, I have to have authority and, uh, and, and I have an obligation and therefore I have authority. That's just the way it is. You know, they go searching for authority when it's in, in fact invested in them. So I think this is a very interesting issue that is around in the West as well. Mm, it's a lovely point, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's a huge issue in the program that we've had. And I can perhaps describe John Gottman's work first outlined that some parents are more emotionally dismissive and some parents are more emotion coaching and emotion coaching is what we're trying to help head parents towards mm -hmm. but in their research they actually found there were other forms of being dismissive there was also being 
critical harsh when children were emotional. There was being, so that was a more disapproving style. There was this dismissive style, which was maybe warm and loving and supportive, but always trying to distract the child or solve their problems rather than focus on the emotion. They had a fourth category they called more of a laissez-faire style of parent, which was a parent who would allow all children's emotions, but give no guidance to the child on how to manage their emotions or their behavior. And we've really worked with this idea quite a bit in our program because what we find is that for many parents who come along, they go, okay, no one talked about my emotions when I was growing up. You know, I had a complete, it was a wasteland and I want my children to feel really comfortable with emotions. So they're coming in going, and so I let my kids feel everything and do and do everything, but they are often boundaryless and the kids are, you know, as you say, out of control. And it reminds me of one of some of my early training in, in child psychotherapy was that that boundary between um, care and control. We need that balance right between that loving care and that level of control for children to grow well. In our work, we've always made sure that we say, okay, there's a difference between being emotion coaching and being more laissez-faire, where you allow emotions, but you also have no boundaries and no limits. So the way that might look is, say a child is very um, is very jealous and frustrated with, say, a sibling, um, you know, having a birthday coming up. And so you might, you know, a more laissez-faire approach would be to, of a parent might be to say, oh, dear, darling, it's awful. You feel so jealous. It's really hard. Um, look, why don't you just play on my phone right now? Or why don't you have this, you know, here you go. And giving, get, which, which sometimes that, that can be effective, as opposed to uh, emotion coaching approach might be to say, it's really hard, isn't it? When your sister's having her birthday, I can see you get really jealous. Come on over here and let's have a bit of a sit for a bit. And you might sit for a bit with a child, be with, might be just rubbing their back, might be just sitting close, it might be having a bit of a cuddle. It might be they're too grumpy to do that, but you're still there and you're communicating acceptance. And then you say, I wonder what you could do to be able to um, be part of your sister's birthday, but also you know, we can talk about those feelings or we can find a way of helping you with that. So that the child still participates in the birthday or still is still able to then repair after hitting the sister. And so you still give guidance about good relationships, about care, you know, looking out, repairing when you've made mistakes. That's really important. But you can do that if you first have connected with a child, you've empathized with their feeling, you've sat with them. So that. That process, if I think of sitting with a feeling in a child until the feeling actually gets less. And they said, oh, mum, mum, dad, they really, they understand how I'm feeling. They get it. And then you go, I wonder what we could do about that. Or I wonder what you could do to go and talk to Susie to try and help, um, you know, deal with the fact, you know, you broke her doll or something like that. So you still guide because kids still need that guidance. So we really try and help people understand that the emotion coaching parts, we call the first four steps of, of noticing an emotion, connecting, empathizing, and naming emotions, and then sitting with that until the feeling comes down. They happen before you, you address the boundary and limit setting stuff or helping them in solve problems. Yes. And I think that's what we actually get. We get the wrong way around. We go to that fifth step of trying to solve problems or limit set, and the child's still really emotional about the issue. And so they can't hear you, and they feel like you're siding with the, their sister or you know, you're not understanding them. But if you can do that first part of connecting, and this is what we do in a therapy situation too, you don't give people advice straight off. You actually try and hear them and you try and communicate an understanding. You, you empathize. And then there's a feeling of like shared experience and like it, it lessens. And then people can think more clearly about solutions. So just the same with children. That parent-child relationship provides that whole context for children to learn that set of skills, calming, regulating before you can think clearly and solve problems. Yes, I mean, I so agree with everything you say. I mean, it's, in psychotherapeutic terms, we, we talk about it as containment. It's the, mm. the task of containing. But, you know, the other example you gave of, you know, you can give the child the phone and say, poor you, you're feeling a bit jealous of my phone. Or you can actually name the, the reality of jealousy, which a lot of parents are very frightened about. They think that, you know, if they name jealousy, it's actually going to happen, whereas it's been alive and well since the year yeah. dot. So, you know, it's actually, 
but, but I think all of your examples are about encouraging growth and development. It's actually about encouraging mental growth as opposed to just educating the child and making the child feel better for five minutes. It's actually helping the child on the path to emotional and developmental growth. And that is an enormous achievement, really. And as you put, I mean, it sounds simple, but it's complex, of course. You know, but it's but that's it sounds it, it's very interesting, you know, what you talk about. And and obviously so much of that is needed in parenting these days. Yeah. I just wanted to ask um, that with respect to the professionals who who sign up for the program and they would they have a wide range of, of basic skills and backgrounds they do a huge range of basics of skills um, and you can have people who, you know, six weeks into working in child protection who get sent along, you know, and they've just finished their, their basic social work or maybe not even that yet. Um, you might have community workers who have limited skills and things. We normally say to people, look, you might not be ready to run groups. You might not be ready to deliver this work. But think about how you can use it personally, because we always encourage our professionals who train with us to try and put into practice these core skills themselves personally, because that really helps their professional development. So with your friends, with your family, with people around you to use these emotion coaching steps. So a more junior person might begin there as opposed to someone who has much more uh, experience or um, more skilled, they may pick this material up and go, right, I've run circular security before. I know how to, you know, this, and they're straight into it and they can do it. It's really fits with their style. We'll also say to people, if you don't feel confident, see if you can find someone in your community or someone around you who is running the group, who you could co-facilitate with because co-facilitation is a really nice way to learn from someone who has a little more experience who's one step or two steps ahead of you and you can observe the group process the group dynamics a little bit more that can also help um, because we do and we say to people you know you may not ever feel ready to use this in your professional work it might be it's it brings up too much for you it might be you know it's too challenging for you so you pick what you want from these skills as a professional, just as we say the same to parents. Um, and people will generally censor and go, okay, well, I'm ready for this or not, or I'm going to try and stick with just co-facilitation for a while. And we had, a, for example, in the New Jersey trial that they did, they had a senior clinician and then a more junior clinician, like an adoptive worker or a child protective worker, was the co-facilitator. And then they'd have an observer who was someone they were mentoring to come up. So they actually have three people and then they'd have like four to six parents. These are families with really complex issues. So you, they often needed a lot of holding, but that is a nice way of working as well, where you have more mentorship uh, at levels of experience um, because these can be challenging kind of groups to run, or this can be challenging work to do. I, again, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's also been part of my own experience that facilitation is very uh, useful, tremendously useful, because there's so much going on in a group that sometimes one person is uh, has to be managing it or holding it or whatever, while another may need to be doing a bit of observation. And then there's also the processing that both can do after the group, which is enormously valuable in terms of working up what's going on, what were some of the themes, how can we do things differently next time. So absolutely critical. I'd just like to ask you about your program specifically for fathers. Do you find that it's important for these programs to be led by a man or do you think that gender doesn't make a difference? Mm, a good point. Um, so Dr. Catherine Wilson was one of our team members until she retired and she did a PhD looking at the role of fathers. And then as when she was part of our team, she developed the father version. She did a lot of groundwork looking into this question about what was important for people, um, for, for fathers who were going to come to a group. What did they need? What was important? And one of the things that she found is that the important thing was not that you necessarily had a male facilitator, but that any facilitator was very clear and careful around their attitudes to men and attitudes to fathers and not you know 
um, having little throwaway lines about, you know, well, sort of normally a mum who does all the work around the house or, you know, things that were sort of snippy things. So being very careful around those issues of gendered use of, of language around fathering and mothering or who, whoever's taking what roles in the, in the family. So it was that that was important and that they were, um, yeah, so more than actually the, the gender per se. Um, and so what we did in our, uh, the research, we did a large randomized control trial with 168 fathers. And sometimes we had, we usually had always a pair of facilitators. Sometimes it was a male, female, sometimes it was two females. Um, and I think that the, the feedback from fathers was that it didn't matter to them, um, that it was just important, the attitude of the facilitator to them as men and their, their development. And, you know, not also using language that's sort of pejorative or critical of men, say, not having emotional language or talking about emotions. I think you know, men vary as well as women around their comfort with emotion. Um, and so you have to be very careful around stereotypes. So that's important. And um, Christian Kehoe and Anne have um, done so quite a bit around um, working with fathers. And I think Christiana in particular found that she's often run groups just as a single female. And again, that's been fine um, with the fathers have attended. Um, so we've now been training many professionals to use the dad's version of the Tuning Into Kids program who are using it in the community. And, um, yeah, I think they often have a mix of male and female facilitators. That's very interesting. I suppose the same applies in psychotherapy or counselling, that it isn't so much the gender, it's the nature of the therapist or the capacity of the therapist to connect with the client or the patient. Mm. And, and yes. about, about language. Language is very important, isn't it? Yeah. And so I just want to ask you a very broad question. Do you think that the demands on parents have changed over the years? And just thinking about some of the issues around the pandemic and its aftermath, well, we hope it's an aftermath rather than an ongoing issue. But do you think things have changed? I mean, you, you mentioned how in some parts of the world there are intergenerational tensions about, you know, yep. parents these days wanting to change, wanting to do things rather differently from their grandparents. But I, I just wonder whether some of the pressures on parents in general may be a bit different or new. Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of things. One that we have, like we've been in a, in, in a in more of an emotion, like an, I'd say, some people say an emotion revolution. There's a greater focus on emotions in the last 20 years than there has been previously. You know, behavioral cognitive approaches have been more dominant for a while, more psychoanalytic approaches dominant for a while. That culture and also the culture of sort of mindfulness and integration of Buddhist ideas into Western thinking, I think that has shifted to a focus on many of the these ideas that we think about. So that is in some senses a cultural change that has made focusing on emotions easier. At the same time, I think there's, um, like I, I think um, technology, the, the lack of time that parents have, the focus on um, you know, not connecting, like you, you need quantity time with kids to connect around emotions, not just quality time. You actually need time. You need to be present sitting in a room when you're not on a phone, when you're not distracted or elsewhere. So I think there are pressures that come with work pressures that come with the kind of sucking in from technology that takes away that connection with kids. Um, and as you see, adolescents in the last 10 years, when, when Christiane and Anne and I first started doing our tuning into teens research back in 2007, 2008, it was so different, the, the playing field around teen development and parenting teens than it is now in 2021, where um, young people spend a huge amount of time on their phones, on their in, on devices that they didn't back then so that creates pressures for parents and it creates pressures for how to connect how do I talk to my child when their frontal lobes kind of firing in a whole different way because they're actually they want to get back onto that game that they've just been playing or they want to make sure that they don't miss out on that chat that's going on with their peer group like there's a real distraction that comes with with the age of technology as well as it offering many very very useful things including helping us through a pandemic I think to be able to still stay connected and to learn and to work but 
I think that lack of time that parents then have to connect and to talk and to be with, that's always when things go wrong in my household, when I'm not actually sitting down on the couch regularly and having that non-talking time, when we're just sitting there playing Uno or doing not very much, and then, oh, suddenly this topic pops up because that's how kids communicate. Um, It's not just when you want them to talk about things. It's that you have to be there and be present. So all the things I think that interfere with being able to be there and be present for kids are potential changes that we're having to cope with. And we've got to go, okay, we need to push some of these back because we've got to create that space if it's actually not there uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know. Absolutely. I suppose that links in with my final question, which is that is there one key factor or understanding that you have found to be central to successful parenting? I think connecting at the child where the child is at. And I think I think it's actually not just just continuing from what I was saying, it, it's actually coming down to and hearing where your child is at, not where you want them to be at, not where you want them to be doing their homework or what you want them to be doing around the house or um, what you'd like them to be saying or thinking about, but where is my child at? So that process of which often involves sitting down slowing down taking off I say your glasses or taking taking away the things that are right in your mind and trying to let them be and seeing your child and connecting with them I think that shifts you from being an adult centered space to being where's my child at and that capacity to pay attention and then connect with kids at that level is I think it begins the whole process of them being able to do many of these things we're talking about around using emotion coaching. And I think that's really vital. And um, maybe in my previous comment, talking about that all the obstacles and the barriers that get in the way of that, those are the things that we, you know, we have to kind of be able to, to push aside to have that time to connect. I, I completely agree. I mean, that you put it so very well. It's, it's, about, it's about having a space having the right sort of space and, um, and and in a way not being able to fit those sorts of communications into little corners somewhere, mm-hmm. giving them the giving them the right to exist, giving the conversation the right, because you, you've got to have the right space to start the conversation. So that's absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you so much for, for all the communication. Very, very interesting indeed. Thank you. Very welcome. Thanks, Ruth.